Let's play the word association game. If I say the word salesman to you, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Salesman. Now, I've been playing that game around the world at the start of every sales course for Pop-Up Business School for about eight years. And the words that always come back are dodgy, sleazy, uh, double glazing window salesman, used car salesman, dodgy, shiny suits. People around the world have such a bad impression of what sales is. But if that's your impression of sales and you're launching a business, how are you ever going to sell something? What would it take to become the hero of your own life? To build the business you've always dreamt of? To make money doing something you love? It's time to take control. Can we get on with making money and having fun now? I'm not doing it if it's not fun. Join the rebellion with Alan Donegan and welcome to Rebel Entrepreneur. So welcome to episode 14 of The Rebel Entrepreneur. This one is all about sales, which is the foundation of your business. If you don't sell anything, you don't have a business. And I guess the first bit I wanted to do is introduce our guests, and then we're going to explore what their definitions of sales are and how they think about sales. So I'm very lucky today to have with me two people. Uh, I've got James Headspeeth, who is the head of sales for Pop-Up Business School. I've known him since he was at university and we made friends when he was launching some of his businesses and I was helping him with some presentations. And over the last couple of years that he's worked for Pop-Up, he has sold millions of pounds worth of sponsorship and Pop-Up Business Schools around the world and helped us to help thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs to launch. Uh, so I'm very excited to have James. James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Really excited to be here and sharing my insights that I've learned over the years all about sales. Me too. I'm excited. You've been learning a lot recently. And I also got Patrick Venn. Patrick, I actually met Patrick at an event called Chautauqua that we run, which is all about financial independence. And Patrick, at the time, was the global sales sponsorship manager for Manchester United and responsible for some incredible size deals. He has since left. He came along to a pop-up and has launched his own business called the Football Finance Academy, where he is helping footballers learn about finance and take control of their money, because a shocking number of them end up bankrupt, even though they earn a high amount of money. Uh, so welcome to the show, Patrick. Thanks a lot, Alan. Really appreciate it. And I'm just like James, excited to talk about what I think is the most important part of any business, sales. Well, let's start there. Why do you think it's important? Why is sales important? Well, I think for any business, cash is oxygen. And really, the only way to get cash into the business is to have someone buy your product or service. So the longer runway you want to stay on board online in business, you need to bring in sales. It's just a matter of fact. What do you think, James? Why is sales important? I completely agree with Patrick. At the end of the day, we go into business to make money. And if you aren't making any money, then you don't have a business. I believe that the salesman or saleswoman, I should say as well, uh, is the driver for the business and is arguably one of, if not the most important assets a business can have. So if you can't sell, find someone who can. <laughs> well, when you start your business, it's quite interesting because you start off with nothing and you don't have a salesperson, you don't have a sales team you got to make this stuff up from the start. And it's actually up to you, the entrepreneur, to sell. 
One thing I would say, James, you said people go into business to make money. I think there is actually a large percentage of our audience that go into business to change the world. And they want to improve things and make the world a better place. Patrick has a thought on this. I've thought a lot about this, actually, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I don't think that you either are going into business solely to make money or going into business solely to change the world. I absolutely believe that you can do both. You can make money in your business and you can change the world at the same time. I actually believe it's important to do both because if you don't make money, you can't change the world. With resources, with cash, you can make a difference in the world. With no resources, it's very difficult to get out there. And actually, without the money that James brings in for Pop-Up Business School, we couldn't have run 50 courses around the world and helped 2,800 people start businesses last year. It would not have happened without James's sales. And I think if you want to change the world, if you have this business idea that's going to improve the world, sales is the engine that drives change. That's how I look at it. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a bit better than the boring definition of sort of transferring a product or service from one party to another. I think that might be the Oxford dictionary definition of sales, but I would agree with you. I think it is, you know, I kind of imagine sales as the gasoline on the fire, right? If you really want your business to grow and spread, that's what you need to execute on. That's probably, I think, one of the most important lanes to get your strategy right and get moving. But I totally understand for a lot of people, it's probably the most challenging area to get a strategy and get moving. So let's let's do this definition of sales bit. There's the Oxford English definition, which is very boring. I have a different one. But James and Patrick, how do you define sales? What is it to you? I would say it is the person or it is the activity that drives the business forward and generates income for the business. For me, mine's maybe slightly different, but sort of the transfer of benefit from one party to another, I think. And the, the role of the salesperson is the, to tell the story of how that product or service can benefit the other party's life. I love that. And just to confuse the people listening even further, I have a third <laughs> one that's my one. My one, which is kind of similar, it's sales is the transfer of enthusiasm from one person to another. Because what I found is if I go around the world and get excited about helping people, get excited about starting businesses, I infect other people with that excitement. And invariably, we end up doing something cool together, which normally involves a project or a sale or something. So I go around infecting people with enthusiasm. Yeah, and I think we've all experienced, whether being on the receiving end of a sales pitch or delivering a sales pitch, I think we've probably experienced both spectrums of someone who you knew did not care at all about what they were selling, or on the flip side, someone who was exceptionally passionate about what they were delivering. And you can just see it's like night and day. Well, actually, let's start there, because in the early days, I took a job selling photocopiers. <laughs> Patrick's nodding like, mm, photocopiers. Yes, you put a piece of paper in and another piece of paper with the same stuff comes back out. They're literally not that exciting. Not only that, the first day I went to sell photocopiers, I went out. You do what's called shadowing, where you follow one of the senior salespeople around. And I went to this sales meeting. We sat down with the company secretary He'd already had a few meetings, so they were signing on the dotted line for the new photocopier that was going to be installed. And he was saying to the company secretary, here's what it's going to be. 
it's going to be this type of photocopier, this cost, this cost. And he said, uh, the deal will be done over three years. But as he said three years, I saw him write on the paperwork five years. And I thought to myself, he's got that wrong. What's going on? But I'm new. It's my first day. I'm nervous. I don't want to speak up in front of the customer and make him feel like an idiot. So I just kind of kept quiet. The company secretary who trusted him just signed the paperwork and then took it back to the director who trusted her, who just signed the paperwork. The paperwork came back signed. They shook hands and we left the building. And outside, the first thing I said is, you got that paperwork wrong, dude. Look, you said three, it said five. What do you think his reaction was? That's fine. You know, that's a good deal for us, maybe. He smiled. He he (laughs) smiled a knowing smile of, I know what I've done, Alan. And the cost was £1,000 a month. And he would put 24 extra months on that deal. So he just ripped that company off by 24 grand, which goes on his gross profit and helps his margins. But he'd ripped them off. So we go back to the office and I go to the sales manager and tell him exactly what I've seen. What do you think their reaction was? Business as usual. Out the door. <laughs> they just smiled. This is great. We've got 24 grand extra profit. And inside I died a little because I thought, I can't do that. I can't sell like that. I don't even believe in the product, let alone the company now. How can I sell this? And I think that's a great story. And I think it highlights one of the biggest problems that I see in sales organizations is short-term incentivizing. Because what he's looked at there is, okay, well, that's maybe a big bonus that I'll get, or I'll hit targets for this month. Except again, it's probably a very short-sighted view. I'd love to know if you ever sold anything again to that same company, (laughs) or that was the end of the relationship. Because I think people see the the short-term benefit and they go for it as opposed to being potentially honest and having that client for another 10 years, right? So I think that highlights one of the specific problems within sales is the short-term of cash incentives that people see. Yes, we're talking about short-term cash incentives. We don't actually pay James any commission. And I think James is actually, that's specifically what you asked for, isn't it, James? Yeah, I can remember uh, my first review meeting, I actually asked for commission, but I think... Now, I wouldn't want to say I'm more mature, but I would say I can understand the reasoning for not having a commission-based sales team in place. I think having a set amount of money that you make a year opposed to kind of commission can actually be quite good because, as you and Patrick have just alluded to, it can actually kind of change the person and it can make you kind of overly competitive And is that the environment that you actually want to create? The biggest thing as well for anyone listening who owns their own business or starting their own business is they'll know how difficult it is to onboard a single customer. And it's way easier to keep a customer happy and keep them for a long time versus constantly having to drive your sales engine and getting out there and getting more leads and closing more sales. So just from a business perspective, I've always thought it makes sense to establish really, really good long-term relationships rather than the short-term incentives that you're always chasing. And it actually reminds me of a story. I think it was Richard Branson, one of the biggest deals that he ever did. I forget which company it was with, but he was sitting across the table negotiating with another company to do a deal. And they 
both were happy with the contract. They both signed on the dotted line and uh, happy days. But I think later Richard Branson noticed there was a very, very unfair clause that favored him and his organization astronomically and put the other side of the partnership in a pretty vulnerable position. And he remembers distinctly picking up the phone, giving a call to the person that he'd negotiated that contract with and said, look, I know we both signed this, but I think there's something that's very unfair for you that we've agreed to. And I think we should change it to something that's a bit more fair for both parties. And he remembers saying, that's a customer I now have for life. Yes, It's someone that I don't have to, I built that rapport, I built that trust, and they don't want to do any business with anyone but me. So I think there's a great lesson in that to really nurture the customers that you do have, because it's way harder getting new ones all the time. So that, that example actually brings us to one of the most important parts of sales, which is trust. Because the underlying thing that has to exist before any sale can happen, before any negotiation can happen, is trust. Because if you don't trust the other side, how are you ever going to do business? So trust, for me, is the first step to building a sale. Now, how do you, either of you, both of you, how do you go about building trust with someone you've never met before? I would say, all jokes aside, it's by being the opposite of the stereotypical salesman image. The stereotypical salesman image is the kind of Dale boy, greasy kind of hair, slick, bit of a manipulator. I just try to be as trustworthy and as normal as possible. And I feel that if you come across as just, it sounds a bit of a cliche, but if you come across as just a normal person, People don't really expect that in sales because they are expecting someone who's a bit of a wide boy, a bit of a Dell boy, who's got the gift of the gab. That's what they're expecting. So if you come at them with, I'm just a normal person, I'm just here to have a conversation with you, I'm just here to kind of make friends, see where it goes, it can, in a way, I feel, catch them off guard because that's not what they're expecting. For me, that is the quickest way to build trust because you're just showing an authentic version of yourself. You're not trying to manipulate them. You're just kind of hoping to build a relationship and see where it goes. Yeah, it's kind of a weird way to think of it. But yeah, building trust or I probably interchangeably use build rapport. I kind of approach it. This may seem a little bit weird, but almost like a first date, really, anytime I'm meeting someone new. So One thing that I definitely do anytime before I go on a sales call or to a sales meeting, we'll definitely do a bit of desk-based research about the person I'm going to meet. And what I'm looking to identify is maybe things they've said in the media so I can talk about those issues that they care about. Maybe it's something personal about them. They love sailing or they have kids or they like snowboarding. It could be more of a personal connection just to get a bit of an idea of who this person is. And it's become easier and easier as time goes on with people's just footprint being online, whether it's social, LinkedIn, other areas. So that's definitely where I start is kind of research a little bit about them so that there's a a topic of conversation we can build rapport across. Maybe it's not the product. Maybe it's about snowboarding or skydiving or some other thing that they like to do. And then the second thing that I do, anytime that I go into a sales meeting, I always start the conversation with them first. So I think naturally as salespeople, especially enthusiastic ones, we love our product. We really want to tell them all the benefits and all the features. But I've really found that asking them about their problems first, what they're experiencing, the challenges they're facing, 
does two things. One, it shows them that I genuinely care about them. But the second thing is it allows me to collect information and little nuggets that they're dropping me along the way about their business so that when I do get around to telling them about my product or my service, I can then start to cherry pick what they've told me and say, yeah, my product, you know, you wanted to really save a lot of time. This is how my product helps you save time. And you would think that they would know that this is happening, but actually they just kind of look across at the other end of the table and they're like, yeah, that is my problem. Oh, great. You have, they don't recognize that you've sort of withdrawn the information early that they care about and then sort of retold them how your product can solve that problem that they have. So those are kind of the two things that I do. And then finally, very quickly, I think is to build on James's point is, is don't go in for that pressure close, that pressure sale. I know when I have a first call or a first meeting with someone, there's a 99.9% chance that I'm not getting the sale in the room whatever you have, there'll be another conversation. There'll be another email exchange. There'll be another moment to connect with them. So not trying to sort of hone in and pressure and close right in the room right away is probably something as well that, that I found useful in my sales experience. I absolutely love that because one of the things we found at Pop-Up is when people hear sales, they almost switch in an instant to sales mode where they just pitch at you. They just talk at you about your product And then you're stood there going, I don't care about any of this yet. And I think for me, sales is not about pitching at the start. It's about understanding at the start, which is exactly what you're saying. The more you can understand the other person, the better you can pitch your product second. So it's always for me about understanding. And at the heart of understanding is the questions you ask. And actually, I don't care whether this is making friends finding a boyfriend, finding a girlfriend, finding whatever, it does not matter. It's being interested in the other person first. I can't remember who said this quote, but the quickest way to be interesting is to be interested. And what I found is most people aren't interested in the other person. They just want to talk at you, which I find fascinating. What do you think about that? How do you do this in real life? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, I don't know if this is the quote from him, but it certainly is right along the same line. But Dale Carnegie wrote that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It may have been from that, but it definitely, he has the same sort of idea is people love to speak about themselves. So let them. And you're there to sort of give a guiding, sort of listening to them and, and just understanding them. They find themselves way more interesting than they might find you. So that's why I lead with them. So I think the best way to show that you're interested is definitely using the kind of open-ended questions, not closed questions. So I start things like, uh, how do you measure success is a great open-ended question that you can tell a lot about a business and how they measure success. The other one that I love to use is what don't you love about the current product or service that you're using? So it doesn't give them the opportunity to speak badly about or how much they hate the current product or service they have. It's just a lighter touch on, yeah, it's okay, but I don't like these specific features or these specific things are missing. So that gives you, again, more clues that you can gather. So for me, it's open-ended questions is a, is a big one. I love that. So just uh, people listening will know I'm a collector of questions. I love good questions. Give me that question once more. What don't you... What don't you love about the specific product or service that you're currently using? So a challenge for the audience, go out there, ask that of some of your clients or ask that of some of your customers at the moment and see what you can find. And they will tell you. They will absolutely <laughs> tell you. 
<laughs> I love that. James, what kind of questions do you ask at the start of meetings? There's a question that I came across recently that has worked really, really well. And I guess it does sort of put the onus on being a bit me, me, me. But I found it does actually work quite well and it helps to understand their problems. I go in and basically say, I know I was the one that contacted you initially, but what was it in my email, phone call, whatever it was that interested you in wanting to speak to me? And like, I'm not joking. They will just sell you the offer. So they will tell you everything why they want to do your uh, service or product. You just sit there and you don't have to do anything. And they just, they sell it to themselves and they tell you everything about why they want to do it. If it goes well, sometimes they don't know and they just want to chat with you. But that's a different story. But yeah, I know guys who have used that strategy on, on first dates as well. And they've asked the girl, what was it that interested you and me? And uh, you can use it all for all different kinds of occasions. But I use it a lot for sales. And it's very, very interesting indeed when you go into a meeting, just say, listen, kind of, what is it that interested you in our offer? And yeah, they will often sell it to themselves in the meeting. And yeah. It makes your job a lot easier. That's a great question, James. Whilst we're on the subject, let's talk about what is ethical sales? And have you ever walked away from a deal before when you felt it wasn't right? So I think it's been a lot different working for an organization and working for yourself. So when I was in the bigger organizations, whether it was Manchester United or other companies that I've worked for in the past... I definitely felt more pressure to hit those targets and go after those short-term incentives. I wouldn't say that I did anything necessarily unethical, but I think that there was definitely pressure to get sales in the door, get cash in the door, because I was going on someone else's targets and something a strategy someone else set. Whereas now, being in control of the sales process in my own business it's allowed me to turn things down that might not necessarily work for me or they've offered me way below what I think the value of the product is. And so it's allowed me to sort of walk away or say no. But in terms of unethical sales. Which we kind of started with, with my photocopier sales example. It happens, it's out there. And actually, I think ethical sales is one of the most important things you can do and finding out whether someone needs your product or service is the first step. So I ask a bunch of questions to see if they have the problem that I'm trying to fix. If they don't have the problem, I'll say thanks for your time, and I'll move on to the next person, because there are so many people who have the problem you're trying to fix, you've just got to find them. And I think sales is not about jamming your product or service into someone, whether they need it or not. It's uncovering Do they actually have the problem you're trying to fix? If yes, sell them. If no, help them find something that does fix their problem or help them. And I think this thought of sales as helping someone else has really enabled me to get out there and sell more. Because I came from a, I was scared to contact people. I was scared to make phone calls. I was scared to do any of it. And it took me a lot of time to get over that and to actually get used to making phone calls, sending cold emails and all those elements. So James and Patrick, how do you go about getting yourself motivated to every day 
send emails, make phone calls and actively sell. How do you go about that? How do you think about it? Because for most people, that thought makes them want to cringe. So I think it's all about building a system or a process that will help facilitate your sales. So I recently read James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, and he's got a great quote in there. I think it's in the book where he says, goals are great for setting direction. Systems are best for making progress. You know, everyone wants to win an Olympic gold medal. It's the athletes that put a system in place that allow them to achieve that end goal. So for me, it's definitely about building a sales process. I think in the past, maybe I've been guilty of, there's just so many things flying at you. You know, who do I speak to? Which person in the organization do I contact? What do I say? How do I get their email? You can get bogged down in all these questions and really make no progress if you don't have a system in place. So the system that I used specifically, I kind of get, I like using tangible examples. So I'll try and use the one for the one that I just did with my, the football finance academy is, and I learned this very much at Manchester United, which was very process driven, that you create a prospect list. So basically what I did was in a prospect list, I listed out every single football club that I wanted to contact in an Excel spreadsheet or a list, pen and paper. You can do it anyway. Spreadsheet's probably your best, best bet for most people starting a business. Listed out all the football clubs I wanted to contact. The next section over was I identified who in that organization I needed to speak to. So it was head of education at the academy or academy director. I got two options. Then I went on to finding out how I can get their email or their phone number. And there's a few tricks here that you can do. Some of the simplest ones are you actually go on LinkedIn and people sometimes tag their email. If they're not careful, they'll put their email right in LinkedIn so you can get it there. Or most times, actually, I've had a really good success rate of this. You just find out what the at and then the end of the email is. So let's say it's at arsenalfootballclub.co.uk. You just have the first name, dot, last name, or a couple combinations of each. It's really not too difficult to find people's email information. And if you really are having trouble, another tactic that I've done before is actually just ring up the organization itself and say, hey, I have a package that I need to send or an email or marketing material I'd like to send to person X. I just want to confirm their email. I have it here as this, and they'll either correct you or not. And that's sort of one way to get past the gatekeeper a little and get the email and the contact details of someone you're looking to connect. So then you have the organization, you have who you want to contact, you have their details, and then the final element to it to make it a bit more successful is you do that desk-based research and you find out that one thing about them, that one comment they made on a LinkedIn post that they were passionate about, that one holiday photo you've seen. I mean, don't get too creepy here uh, where you're sort of looking at their entire life, but what you're trying to do is just get one or two things, get a glimpse of someone and who they are and what they care about so you can drop that in to the cold email that you send them. So the first line might be, hey, I saw you did a great initiative X, Y, Z, and then you can carry on of why that links into why you're contacting them. So I think just setting out that grid of the prospect list, and then basically what I've done is I split them into tiers. So of all the clubs, I know they're all not a top priority. So you have tiers one, two, and three, or however many you need. And that allows you to kind of reach out systematically. Because if you have a hundred prospects you want to go out to and you, you're trying to contact them all, you'll drive yourself crazy and you'll waste weeks and weeks and weeks. So if you tier it and go, okay, each week I'm going to reach out to five people or 10 people. And it's a system that goes along 
and you keep track of their responses so you can see which email templates are working. Maybe you try some other ones to, to see what sticks and what gets the best results. And you keep track of that as well. So you can basically course correct along the way. So you have a good system in place. Personally, I spend about an hour each morning from nine to 10 reaching out to people or responding to sales emails. And then I'll move on to the things I need to do for the rest of the day and periodically check in and, and respond to those emails. So sort of the long-winded answer of saying, setting yourself up a good system and a process will help you make progress and be successful with your sales. So Jimbo, how do you motivate yourself? Because you're one of the hungriest salespeople I've ever met, which I love, but you don't get any commissions. So how do you motivate yourself to each day send the emails, make the calls? How do you approach this? Like uh, something that I've often thought about myself, and I think I've always actually been quite a self-motivated person, like looking back at other things that I've achieved in my life, like I've done kind of marathons, triathlons, a whole host of crazy kind of challenges like that. And it takes a kind of, I guess, a very kind of self-motivated person to actually do it. And I feel that if you go into sales, you actually have to be incredibly self-motivated to actually do it because it isn't an easy job by any means. And you're going to take a lot of kind of bumps and knocks and you need to be very kind of resilient to actually do it. So yeah, I think, like, honestly, I don't know what makes me self-motivated. Part of it, I think, comes down to the fact that there's two kind of motivators for people when they buy something, and it's kind of to gain pleasure and to avoid pain. And I think I'm a bit of both. I know that if I don't get up in the morning and I don't work extremely hard, I will probably lose my job and the business will go out of business and lots of people will lose the jobs. And that's like an awful scenario. But at the same time, I'm an incredibly competitive, single-minded, driven individual that I constantly want to kind of challenge myself and kind of beat last year. I've almost got kind of got like an athlete kind of competitive mindset that I would want to continually beat what I previously did so I know every single year how much I made for the company and it's my goal to kind of beat it every single year so I've got, got that kind of competitive urge inside me I don't know where that comes from um I'd need to sit down with a psychiatrist probably <laughs> and, and analyze it um but I think I'm like a real mix between trying to gain pleasure and trying to avoid the kind of the pain and the hurt, but I would say I'm probably more leaning towards the pleasure. And to build on that, making sales and closing deals and making money, it's an incredible buzz. And like once you close a deal, even if you close a deal for like £2,000, which in our line of work for Pop-Up Business School, isn't it a huge amount of money? Because some of the deals like 20, 40, 50, 100,000 pounds. So even closing a £2,000 deal for me gives me a buzz and it gives me a kick. So like that buzz gets me out of bed in the morning. And I think that if that doesn't excite you, then you're not going to last very long in sales. And it's probably best that you find someone who, who is excited by that and who is good at that and who is competitive and enjoys it. 
I think that it ties back really nicely, James's response to what we talked about earlier about the sort of short-term motivation as well. Because if your only incentive is to go out there and make money, especially if you're working for an organization or yourself, there's a bit of difference. But if your only motivation is to make money, I genuinely think you will lose a bit of steam. Maybe not. Maybe there's some people that are completely driven by money. And you know what? That's that's okay. That that happens. But I think if you can get that mix of it provides me a great living and I actually am passionate and excited to actually sell the service or the product that I've created or my team's created. If you have that mix of both, I think you will, will be able to keep yourself a lot more self-motivated. I know for me personally, the paychecks as my career went on got higher and higher but that had no correlation to my enthusiasm to sell those specific products. So I remember the probably the best, most enjoyable thing is I started a, a lemonade company when I was about 24. I was a grown-ass man with a lemonade stand. And I remember we packaged and bottled this homemade lemonade that I've been drinking in my family for 80 years, but we finally just packaged it and started selling it at a local farmer's market. I think I sold them for about three bucks to make, and I sold them for nine. I made that first sale of nine bucks. It was probably the feeling that I've had the most sort of proudest moment is it had nothing to do with correlation to the number itself. It was that it was your own product. You made your first sale. You, you realized that you could actually start doing this and people would buy your product or service. That motivated me more than the actual dollar amount or the commission amount itself. But I like James's response about this sort of feeling like an athlete and self-motivated and challenging yourself because I've seen other cultures where you compete against each other within the organization and that's, for me, quite toxic. But if you can get it sort of internally, like James has, where you're just competing with yourself, I think that can be a brilliant motivator for sales as well. Just to build on that, even if you are listening and you're in an organization that you have to compete with other people or you feel that you have to compete with other people, perhaps instead of feeling the pressure that you have to compete with others, just challenge yourself to Try and beat your sales targets for last year and the year before that. Forget about everyone else and just make it about yourself. And that's the way that I've always grown. And I think that's probably the best way to do it instead of kind of worrying about what anyone else is doing. Well, I think that's one of the things you've embodied the best, James, that I have seen is that you are constantly seeking to improve in every area of your life. I'm always inspired by that. And you know, I do the same thing is what's the next book on sales? What's the next course that I can go on on sales? Who's the next salesperson that I can learn from? How can I get the next deal slightly bigger than the one before? And that constant improvement. Everyone has done this better than you before. And so you could just cherry pick and learn from everyone who's done it and mastered it already. I know it can feel like when you're starting out that it's this world you don't know and you kind of feel lost and I don't know how to conquer it. But there are dozens of resources at your fingertips, whether free or with a very small price point that can prove some serious ROI on your own business if you just make that small investment. So let's work to turn this into a little bit of a process. My thought here is we've got Patrick, who has a very clear target market of football clubs. We've got James, who has a very clear target market of councils. That's who mainly buy pop-up business schools. And we've got those very clear target markets, which makes your life easier to go through the process of identify who it is, the organisation and where it is. But there's going to be a whole 
bunch of people at home going, I sell soap. Everyone uses soap. How do I do that? Do you have any advice for those people who have products, craft businesses? How would you go about thinking through what the target market is? Because they're not even going to get into that process because they don't even know where to start. I'm just glad I sell to councils now. (laughs) I think the first thing that I would do to make your life easier, let's take the soap example because it's right there in front of us, is you start sort of deciphering, okay, which lane am I going in, business to business or direct business to consumer? You may do both, and that's fine as well, but they'll each need their own sort of process and their own unique strategy. So I think the very, very first point I would begin with is identifying, okay, am I going to be selling my soap to realtors, like shops, for them to sell on to the end consumer? Or does my business model actually prefer me more to go direct to consumer? Am I actually going to get out to the farmer's market, sell on social media direct to the person on the other end of the phone or the computer or the transaction? So I think step number one would be identifying which lane you want to go into Again, you can go into both, but if you're just starting out and you're looking to generate your first kind of sales, I would probably advise to pick one of those lanes first instead of making your life difficult and trying to do two sales strategies simultaneously. So that would be where I would sort of begin first. And then in terms of narrowing it down from there, I think if you're going for the B2B model, you're going to businesses. One of the first things that I would do is probably start in my local area and actually go and make connections with the people right in your radius because you'll cut down on travel costs. It's in your area. You can walk to all your sales meetings, things of that nature, and try and actually build a brand within the community if, again, we're talking about soap. So I'd kind of put a radius on the people in my neighborhood that could possibly be a buyer, and I would go sell my story. And I think if you have a story beyond the soap, kind of like I had a story behind the lemonade, it gives you a one-up. When you build the rapport with the person on the, in the store that you're trying to stock your product on their shelves, and you have some type of story that can differentiate you, it's a local-based product maybe, it's got an inspiring story behind it, these will all be things that will help you sell to places right in your neighborhood. And then if we sort of switch to the other side, if it's thinking about going direct to consumer, I've definitely just started doing this myself recently, which is this idea of social selling. So using your Instagram or your LinkedIn, things of that nature to actually sell that soap or that product or service. And it's not too dissimilar. It's just a different functionality. So you're still trying to tell your story, what makes it unique, giving people insights, but it's just slightly different the tactics you would take in, in setting up your, I mean, it's a whole world there of setting up your Instagram bio. When people land on it, they know exactly what they're here for and what you sell. It's the same going to the guy in the store that you want to sell your product to. He's got to know exactly what you want to sell and what your mission is. But I would definitely pick your lane. Are you business to business? Or are you business to consumer? That's your first place that you should start. And then I would pick a strategy within those to start developing, whether you're selling social business to consumer, whether you're on Amazon, again, narrow it down, pick a lane and learn that one lane and make your life a little bit easier. Which comes back to niche marketing and choosing a target, which is the thing I found most difficult when I first launched my business was I didn't know who I was selling to. And actually, I think the thing to realize here, if you're listening to this, when you start your business, is there is no right or wrong answer. 
pick an audience, pick a niche market, it doesn't really matter which, and try and sell it to them. If it sells, you know it's probably a good market and you can press in. If it doesn't, pick another one. But the narrower your niche market is, the easier it is to find the email addresses, find the Instagram accounts, to find the people on LinkedIn and to message them directly. And I think this brings me to broadcast versus direct. And what I've noticed is most entrepreneurs, when they start up, they're like, yeah, set up the Instagram account and I'm going to broadcast my message out there to the masses. And it gets lost in the noise. Whereas the action, and this is from personal experience, this is what I did when I started. The action I really needed to do was contact individuals to start that sales process and get one sale, which leads to two sales, which leads to five, which leads to 10 and grows from there. So direct is me finding a human, reaching out to that human and selling them something. Broadcast is I'm going to post on Facebook and go, ta-da, and wait to see what comes back. And when you're starting, most people elect to broadcast because they're afraid of the rejection of the direct. And I think that's the number one tip from me is you need to do more direct than you do broadcast. That's my number one tip. James, what do you think? No, I completely agree. Indeed, my approach to sales has been a very, very direct approach. I love the kicking in the doors approach and just kind of going out and finding business. Yeah, like I completely agree with you. The broadcast approach where you just broadcast a message to a wide audience is like throwing a fishing net into the sea and hoping you catch like a shark or a whale. It's a very untargeted approach to trying to find a customer. But if you're a lot more direct, you can be a lot more specific. And it's an approach that has worked very well for us at the Papa Business School. And yeah, if I was starting a new business now, I'd, I'd try and really kind of segment it down, try and find out who the right people to speak to are in that industry uh, or the customer, sorry, uh, and just try a very kind of direct approach opposed to kind of putting a kind of big message out on Facebook or Instagram and kind of telling the world what I'm doing because yeah that's that's not the best way to do it and like you alluded to like people do that because they are scared of rejection but that actually conversely is a form of rejection as well because you're putting the message out there but nobody's going to respond to that message or it's highly unlikely anyone's going to respond to that message so it's much better just to be upfront, be direct, go and speak to someone and they will tell you yes or no if they don't like your kind of product or service and direct feedback is often the best feedback you can get. Also the most painful, James. It's also the most painful, that direct feedback, which is why people don't want it. Yeah, definitely, definitely is indeed. But I find like you need to have kind of like a learner kind of mindset that when you go out, you're going to have kind of rejection. You're going to have kind of bumps in the road. Piggybacking off of that, I know it's very scary for people to go out and face the sort of when they're doing the direct sales approach and and receive that no. And if there's one tip that I can give people is you can actually start embracing the no. 
So a lot of people feel it as sort of direct rejection. If someone says no to their product or service, you have the power and you have the ability to flip that no and actually become a benefit to you. So the two ways that you do that is one, when you receive a no from someone, it actually is a good thing because it actually frees up bandwidth and time to actually go speak to people who may actually want to buy your product. And number two is when you get the no, the key thing that people forget to do is they receive that harsh feedback. And I've been guilty of this myself is you receive the harsh feedback of a no or rejection response. And you kind of feel a bit sad and you turn tail between your legs and you walk away. But if you can just do this one thing and you can ask why they responded no, then you can actually start empowering that rejection and actually collecting feedback from that person. Maybe your pricing was too high. Maybe they didn't like the design on your box. And I'm not saying that you have to take everyone's individual feedback and change the whole design and everything like that. But if you start seeing patterns and themes within people's responses, then you can start, again, changing and making adaptations in real time to actually make your product or service even better. So one trick that's really helped me is actually just the word no, instead of thinking of it as a negative word, it's actually a positive impact on my business. I love that. We repeat ad item at the Pop-Up Business School that every no is a learning opportunity. And if you treat those as such, and you go out there and you get 10 no's a day, by the time you've gone through a week or two of those rejections, your sales process and what you have learned, you will improve so much and the sales will start to come in. It's this deliberate practice piece of taking every single time you practice sales, learning from it to get better. And if you learn and grow, you will constantly improve. Just to build on the no's, I actually slightly digressing a little bit but i read a kind of fascinating book very recently called never split the difference by an fbi hostage negotiator called chris voss and he actually argues that you should actually try and force the no so you should actually go out of your way to encourage the other person to say no and some of the questions you can say are for example have you given up on doing a pop-up business school have you given up on this offer that I have for you. And that forces them to actually say no, because a lot of the time we go out and do a pitch and we're trying to force the yes out of someone, but that in turn actually forces the no. And once you get that no, interesting things can happen. One of the things that I learned along the way that was super helpful is don't waste time and energy to convert non-believers. So caveat here, it doesn't mean that you give up on the first time someone says no, But I think we've all been in that situation where we have the like 13th chase email prepped in the inbox and we're not sort of listening to those signs that actually maybe it's time to move on and direct our energy and attention to someone else. So, yeah, that was a a lesson that I've learned from some salespeople along the way is don't waste your time and energy trying to convert non-believers. I love that. So let's just wrap up this bit. The one bit I really want to get to at the end is asking for the sale, because what I've discovered, that's the most nerve wracking painful bit is you've had this fabulous connection you've had a great chat most people then just go thanks for listening to me and don't actually ask for the business and they miss out on deal after deal after deal how do i know this because it's what i used to do and still do when i'm feeling nervous or my confidence is not up actually takes me confidence to ask the question so james patrick what are your tips on asking for the sale I would say one of the 
best ways in which you can actually ensure someone's going to buy is to get them to make a commitment. And I learned something recently, and it's called commitment-based selling. So at the end of the pitch, at the end of the sales meeting, or if you're having coffee or whatever you're doing with the prospect, get a commitment from them. So at Pop-Put Business School, we run live events. And one of the things that I often try and get from ProspectX is a commitment from them to come along to one of our events. And I know if they come along to one of our events, it's very likely that they are then going to buy the product. If they can't do that, then I try and get a commitment that they will speak to another one of our customers. But if the customer that you're speaking to is unwilling to make a commitment, that immediately tells me that they're not interested and they, they won't have the time to do this. But if they proactively get involved in the process of actually kind of making commitments to you, it's almost kind of very kind of similar to a relationship when a relationship is starting out. If the other person isn't kind of willing to make the commitment to you, they're probably not worth your time. But if you can set them very kind of simple commitments that they can uh, follow through, that should give you a, a very good understanding that they are serious and they are interested in buying from you. And that, for me, I found is a very good way to kind of progress the sale because it's very kind of unusual. I'm racking my brain right now and trying to think of the last time I actually went to a sales meeting and I closed it there and then. It's normally a very kind of long process that doesn't happen on a kind of one-off meeting and you kind of go into the sales meeting and shake hands and it's done. That's why I find the commitment-based process is a much better to actually get them involved in the process than trying to shake their hands and make them agree to something there and then. I love that, James. And that commitment-based sales process could be tied to anything. If you had a food business, you could get them to try some of the food. That's the commitment. Try this and give me feedback. When I was doing my training business, I would get them to commit to a 45-minute session where I ran the training session for them. And if they like it, then we would go on to the next step and see if we could roll it out. So it's getting those small commitments along the way to test, experience, give feedback, see, speak to a client that will help you get towards that bigger yes. And actually, if you do sales correctly, the close kind of happens naturally at the end. If you're having to force the close, you probably haven't done the steps up until then that well. What's been your experience, Patrick? The two things that come to mind naturally are one of my favorite things that I use to kind of try and get a soft close, at least a bit of a commitment like you guys are talking about, is saying, you know, I'd love to work together. How can we make this happen? That's a kind of a, a disarming way of asking for the same thing. And it shows that you're fully invested in this and you want to work specifically with them. So that's a great one as well. But the other thing that I do is if I can see they're kind of, they kind of want the product, maybe they're on the fence a little bit, they don't know, is I will ask about what would be preventing this from happening or what are the, do you feel any risks or like try and bring out in the open what their concerns are so that you can actually address them. Because if you can't see them, you can't solve them. So that's another thing that I do use is trying to tease out if, and, and sometimes it's, you'll never be able to see, maybe it's because it's something internal with their boss and some internal politics you can't see. It might not just be something as simple as it costs too much. So I think trying to understand 
what the barriers are to them saying yes, so that you get them out in the open, that you can start identifying them. Those are the two things that I use to, to kind of help move the process along. I love that, Patrick. So James, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. If you had one closing thought for a new entrepreneur who's starting a business, one thing you would say, you must do this, you must do this. What would your closing thought be for those new entrepreneurs? This is kind of something close to my heart because it's something that I've experienced recently. And for me, it's give yourself enough space and enough time to actually be successful. I think when I started my own company, I thought, you know, one month I'll be up and running my website. Sales will be coming in in three months. I'll pretty much be lying on a beach sipping pina coladas within six, maybe 12 on a stretch. But I think when you're settling into the process, you start learning that things are taking a lot longer to develop. Your business may pivot and shift slightly to something else. And I see so many people stop and give up maybe just before they're going to make that one breakthrough that keeps them going. So I think the biggest thing for me is not necessarily about sales specifically, but more just about giving yourself enough time and enough runway to actually fully see your project through and give it the absolute best shot that you can. It may be working on it in the evenings while you still have your current nine to five job. It may be something as moving back in with your parents if you're a little younger to again, keep your cash in your business and give you more runway. It might be living off one salary versus two in a relationship. There's dozens of ways to give yourself more time and more space to be successful. But that's something I've learned. Things are, will take longer than you, than you expect. So be patient. And if you keep moving forward and keep making progress, hopefully you'll see that, that sort of tide start to turn. And you'll see signs along the way as well, right? You'll get your first sales call. And then you'll get you know your first one that went to contractor, you almost closed. Then you'll get your full first sale. You'll get all these signs along the way uh, that will help give you encouragement as well. So give yourself enough time. I love that. The space to properly have a go. And if you multiply that time with energy and enthusiasm, it's incredible what happens. Awesome. Mr. Head Spieth, closing thoughts. I would say ensure that what you're selling actually solves a problem because a lot of what we actually talked about on this podcast is trying to solve the client's challenges and problems. Now, if you have a product or service that instantly solves someone's problems, you're going to have a very easy sales meeting. Not a very easy sales meeting, but it's going to be a lot less fraught if you have a product or a service that instantly helps solve their challenges. And some of the best businesses out there and some of the best kind of creations that I've seen out there have been thought out of someone's just desire to fix a problem. And if you can see the problem that exists there, someone else can see it as well. And that, I guess, in kind of simple economics is supply and demand. So, yeah, I would seek out problems and see if you can fix it and make sure that your product or service solves someone's problem. You're exactly right, James. Sales is the process of uncovering someone with a problem, telling them you can fix it, and then asking for money in return. And by going out there, finding problems and fixing them, that's how your business is going to become successful. Patrick, James, thank you for your thought, energy and ideas and being part of the podcast. It's been a blast. Thanks a lot, Alan. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. 
<laughs> James, you're a legend. That was the sales episode of The Rebel Entrepreneur. And what I want you to take away from this episode is that sales is the transfer of enthusiasm from one person to the next. If you can go out there and find people with problems that you can fix, get enthusiastic about fixing them and helping them, and then ask for the sale, ask for the money, it's incredible what will happen. You get wealthy in life by adding value to other people's world, to other people's lives. Now, my friend Bryce always says this is one of those helpful but useless pieces of advice, because what is value? What I mean by that, value is different to every single person. You have to uncover what is valuable to them. What's their problems? What's their issues? What are they trying to achieve? Uncover that and then you can sell them what you have got that fixes that. You get wealthy in life by fixing other people's problems, making their world better and adding value to them. That's the key. Sales is not about forcing your product on someone without knowing what's important to them. Sales is about understanding them. So what I want you to go out and do is go out into the world, and I don't care whether it's through Facebook, Instagram, the phone, email, they're all just communication tools. Pick one, start to speak to your customers, ask them what their problems are, and then sell them what they want. Sell them something that fixes that. That is the key to getting wealthy. And if you want to build a business, learn to love sales. You've been listening to Rebel Entrepreneur with Alan Donegan. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to get new, fresh episodes as soon as they've launched. To stay up to date with the rebellion, visit choosefi.com slash rebel. Thanks for joining the rebellion. Rebellion.